Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday night, August 7th, 2019, as we are streaming live on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. The Chicago White Sox just wrapped up a four-game series in three days at Detroit and came away as series winners, winning three out of four. They have now won back-to-back series on the road after winning two out of three in Philadelphia, and they have won five of their last seven games, in large thanks to the offense finally waking up. We'll recap what went well in, in Detroit plus a look ahead at the upcoming series at home against the Oakland Athletics, but also the next 30 games in which the combined winning percentage for White Sox opponents is 573. So it gets much tougher for the White Sox this next month. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. After starting 4-16 and 16, uh, after the All-Star break, it's nice to see the White Sox win 5 out of 7 on the road, even if they do beat up on Detroit. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's good when the White Sox win any game, but it was nice to see some order and, and some perspective, I suppose, when it comes to the Central and rebuilding teams and just... You know, the White Sox sometimes look like the worst team that's ever played baseball, but then you see them play four games in Detroit and you realize that they're actually ahead of some other teams. And uh, we've seen worse, and there's a shot of this actually, you know, them climbing out of this. And as we said at the very beginning of the season, what we are hoping to see in 2019 obviously is progress. And the White Sox beating the teams we thought they should be beating. And they have been doing that, especially against Detroit. They are a much better team than the Detroit Tigers. And someone that had a big series, there are two hitters that had big series against the Tigers this week. First, Jose Abreu. He went 9 for 17 in the four games with just with three walks to just one strikeout. He did have two doubles, and he also hit a home run. 
He has four walks in the month of August. And the reason why that is important is that his combined total for June and July was four. He only walked twice in June and in July. So Abreu has already, in the month of August, has many walks as he did in the months of June and July combined. And I feel like when watching Abreu this season, Jim, with it being his contract year, at times it just feels like he's trying to do too much. Like the county numbers are there. He's on his way to hit more than 30 home runs and drive in more than 100 RBIs. But I just think he's at his best when he's pickier at the plate. The competition gets much tougher these next 30 days, but could this series in Detroit be a springboard for Abreu? I'm not I'm not confident about that just because they did face a lot of lefties and a lot of, I guess, underwhelming lefties. Uh, this series against Oakland coming up, they face Mike Fires, Tanner. Not not to uh, cut in on your uh, you know, preview for the upcoming series, but they face three righties, Mike Fires, Tanner Rourke, uh, Chris Bassett. And they're all righties who give righties a hard time. They're not, uh, you know, uh, I guess pitchers who have changeups or, or, or pitchers who really, you know, maybe might have reverse splits. They give righties a hard time. So I think this might be a little bit of a respite for Abreu, this Detroit series, um, facing guys, I guess, who are more his speed and, uh, you know, coming at the right angles and don't force them to press. Uh, but I, I think this series coming up against Oakland where they are facing three quality right-handed pitchers, I think that'll be a much more accurate indicator of where uh, Jose Abreu is right now and where Tim Anderson is right now because he had another great series, but again, also against uh, you know left-handed pitching that's a little bit soft. Just keep continuing to cut into my rundown. You can just take the rest of the show off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about Tim Anderson uh, in a moment, but you're not buying the fact of Jose Abreu, Cy Young killer, could return. It's possible. I mean, I think when it comes to the at-bats that he's had, especially maybe in key RBI situations uh, later in the season after other guys started slowing down and the run started drying up, um, you know, we've talked about it before that sometimes his bat looks slow and not necessarily because he's getting older or he's lost bat speed, but just more because I don't know if he's trying to uh, really grunt it out of the stadium on an inside pitch and just gets all tied up. The you know, As we heard Hawk Harrelson say so many times, you know, hitting with short arms, Sometimes those arms seem pretty long, uh, and it seems like he's really trying to cover, you know, I guess he's expecting to be covering the outside corner or maybe a little bit off the plate, take a right field, and then they come inside and he just gets all tied up and, um, you know, I guess gets out thought. Um, and uh, so I, I think uh, he's not necessarily as bad as he looks at, at times, but it is something he needs to correct before the end of the season because, I mean, if he has, like, say, a pretty uneven rest of the season and has an OBP flirting with 300 or maybe if it's in, in the high 290s, uh, that makes it a lot harder to argue for keeping him around when you know it's just that many outs and he doesn't provide uh, really much in the way of defensive value. Yeah, the, it's still a difficult conversation for the White Sox eternally about Abreu's status moving forward. And we don't know what the qualifying offer amount is going to be. What was it last year? 18.2? I thought it was 17-something. Okay. But in that in that neighborhood. Yeah. So let's say it's $18 million because it, it seems to increase every single season. Would you, if you were Rick Khan, offer Jose Abreu a qualifying offer of one year, $18 million? It was 17.9. So we we're in between. Um, okay. But... It seems like if they really are fine with signing him for one year, no matter what, if it's more of an argument over uh, years than um, th- than dollars, then I would say 
probably it's not a bad idea just because I think Abreu would have to take it given what happened in the market uh, for similar players last year. And it would um, make it, I guess, really hard for another team to justify signing him, you know, for a dollar amount. I'm thinking of like Mike Moustakis, uh, the way he had to go back to the Royals when they slapped the qualifying offer on him. And even, I guess, the year afterwards when he didn't have the qualifying offer, it was still tough sledding uh, for a player who did play third base and, and it turns out even some second base. Uh, so I think, you know, the qualifying offer would be overpaying him. But I think if it's a way to, if they really want to make it, you know, I guess we don't want to commit to Jose Abreu in 2021 just yet, given the season he's had, that would certainly be a way to do it. Yeah, if he's got a qualifying offer, I think that scares away other teams. Yeah. Like Abreu, and we're looking ahead a couple of months, but I have to imagine if Abreu gets slapped with a qualifying offer, Jim, and he doesn't take it right away, I mean, he could be one of those guys that's a free agent into January, maybe even February. Oh, or maybe even longer. March? I mean, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on you know, just how, you know, what he's trying to get and how much pride gets in the way in terms of making it. Cause the guys who didn't sign like, you know, Dallas Keuchel, for instance, uh, at some point it becomes about making the qualifying offer. Craig Kimbrell is the same thing, just that they don't want to accept even if it's like prorated, you know, going into May and June, uh, they just want to somehow make the same per game amount. It just becomes about pride. So it depends, you know, whether a Braves is comfortable with, you know, going for years and will sign for like, say two to three years for, Eight million a piece or something like that. You know, if he's willing to do that, maybe it's a way to shortcut it. But I think when it comes to the kind of, uh, uh, you know, I guess if if he's going for say if he feels you know, if he rejects the qualifying offer, and it's because he thinks he's worth seventeen point nine million a year, then I think it will be really tough for him to find any kind of deal within you know before spring training starts. Big fifty games coming up for Jose Abreu. For his sake. It'd be nice if he caught on fire. It'd be a lot more enjoyable as well for White Sox fans because when Jose Abreu is on fire at the plate, uh, he could just—I think he could still be a monster even though he's at the age of 32. Now, Tim Anderson also went crazy in Detroit. He only played three of the four games as he sat out the second game of the doubleheader. But in those three games, he went nine for 14. He only had one extra base hit, and in the final game, he had two infield singles. Uh, you know, one deflecting off the pitcher. And uh, again, he's not hitting for power, but his season slash line is 322 with a 347 on base percentage. And his slugging is still 494, even though April and May are carrying a lot of weight right now with that slugging percentage. But with Anderson back on the mend and seemingly to be more comfortable putting the bat on the ball and putting the ball more frequently in play, Jim, are we going to see another power surge from Anderson after this series? Yeah, I guess that my answer would be the same as it was for Abreu. We'll see after the Oakland series, have a better idea of where he is. I mean, it's good. And the fact that he drew a couple walks in this road trip, one was by Roman Quinn, so that doesn't really count. But, you know, drawing a walk against a pitcher uh, instead of a position player is a, a step in the right direction because he hadn't, you know, speaking of walk droughts, he hadn't drawn one against a non-position player since May 23rd, I believe. So that was a long time, even with the injury uh, and, you know, taking out a lot of his July, it's still a long time without a walk. So I think there is some patience, maybe a little bit coming back to him. But again, you know, seeing those lefties that they saw and, and seeing the ball come in a bit longer and have a little bit more reaction time, I think uh, Oakland and, and the righties they bring, especially like a guy like Bassett who throws a little bit like three quarters and uh, hides the ball from righties a bit and can be vulnerable to lefties. I think he'll be a much more... Uh, 
reliable indicator of just how hot these White Sox are or whether they're just, yeah, I guess, feasting on lesser pitching. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing if they beat up on lesser pitching because, uh, you know, if they don't do that, then they're you know, they're not doing anything. So they have to beat up somebody if they're major league hitters. But uh, I, I think when it comes to just feeling good, I don't know if, how good we should feel yet until maybe like a week from now. Somebody who did not have the best of series was Eloy Jimenez. He had a good game at the plate in the night affair of the doubleheader where he went three for five. But for the entire series, he was five for 19 with seven strikeouts to one walk. And since coming off the injured list, Jimenez is 10 for his 49 with 17 strikeouts to just one walk. And he only has two extra base hits, one double and a home run. This is spanning 11 games. This is a short stretch of games and everyone goes through slumps, especially at 11 game uh, spans during a 162 game season. It's just that. At times, since he's came off the injured list, Jim, it appears that Jimenez is not having very competitive at bats mm-hmm. as teams continue to bust him with breaking pitches and they're still attacking low in the strike zone against him. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned that you're writing something about this, so I don't know if you want to spoil it too much uh, you know, based on what you've said, but what have you found? I guess if you can do like the overview. Sure. So pitches that are in the, the lower third of the strike zone. So this is about knee to mid-thigh high. When you're looking at the heat map for him, like the average launch angle for pitches down the middle and low in the strike zone is negative two degrees. So pitchers, I think, have learned so far, at least opposing teams, that if you live down there with the fastball, Jimenez is just going to beat it into the ground. And obviously, you know, maybe he could pull one and he'll get a double off you if he goes down the line. But if you keep it to the middle and even to the outside corner, uh, he's going to hit he's going to hit a ground ball. And the exit velocity takes a big drop as well, whereas exit velocity is sitting around 88 to 89 miles per hour, which is still pretty decent, but nothing like up in the zone where he's averaging 93 to 94 miles per hour exit velocity on anything mid to upper in the strike zone. Uh, and teams are still throwing close to 40% of breaking pitches to Aloy Jimenez. Mm. Uh, and it's just one of those things. That, and again, this will come out tomorrow on SoxMachine.com as I compare what Jimenez is going through and what we saw last year with Yohan Mikata. But and a lot of people have been making this point, too, about Luis Robert, why now is the time to bring him up so they go through these growing pains. And that's what this is for Aloy Jimenez is that he's going through growing pains right now. And I wonder if it's just a bit of frustration because we saw it on Wednesday's game, Jim. I think in his third at bat, he took his batting gloves off and he went up to the bat, uh, you know, barehanded. And then in his fourth at bat, when that didn't work, he put the batting gloves on Hmm. and he got an RBI single. Yeah, maybe just like a mental reset for him. Yeah, and we've seen it. We've seen crazier stuff. Guys are shaving off their mustaches uh, (laughs) during the game, you know, just to get that mental refocus. But, you know, again, in in the last 50 games of the season, this is something to watch. Can Jimenez learn on how to drive the ball that's low in the strike zone? Does he have the swing path to get more loft in that bottom third? 
Because uh, even if you look at guys like the best, right? Today's his birthday. Mike Trout, who just turned 28 years old. Trout is getting like 11 to 12 degree launch angle on the lower third. Those are like line drives. So it's it's really tough for opposing pitchers to get Mike Trout to hit a ground ball. And obviously, that's something that Trout has learned over time. But we, I guess the silver lining is in a lost season, a season that we weren't expecting the White Sox to be competitive, there are things that Eloy Jimenez needs to work on as far as his swing, and he should get ample time. But right now, I mean, even in a series against Detroit where you're seeing Jose Abreu and Tim Anderson have some success, you know, the veteran guys, uh, Jimenez is still getting picked on, even though it's the Detroit pitching staff. And it seemed like they were fine with throwing lefties against him, too. That was the one case where they were going to the bullpen and bringing in a lefty to face him. So I think that tells you something a little bit about uh, how they feel just about throwing breaking stuff at him, not necessarily breaking stuff from a right-handed pitcher, running away from him, making him lunge at pitches and try to you know poke the ball uh, uh, yeah, on the outer third or off the plate and, and trying to get it off the end of the bat. They're fine you know, bringing the pitches right to him and just, uh, as you mentioned, going down in the zone or going below the zone, just dropping it down didn't really matter where, just as long as it was not up and hanging. So I think... Uh, yeah, there's something to what you're saying, and uh, it's it's certainly you know if, if he's not having the same kind of revival that Abreu and Anderson had against uh, the softer pitching of Detroit, then yeah, it's it's only get tougher sledding for him. But hopefully, you know, as as you know, you mentioned with the batting gloves and just trying to have a mental reset, there is a natural hitter in there, and I just hope that uh, you know he finds it and is able to get back. Yeah, you know, and I think natural is maybe overstating it a little bit. You know, there is work and preparation. And I think part of Jimenez's adjustment is having to prepare and having to know how pitchers are attacking him and having a better uh, game plan inning to inning uh, as opposed to just you know knowing how hard a pitcher threw and what his breaking balls were. I think there's more to it at the major league level and he's learning that and hopefully uh, you know by the end of the season he has a good inning to inning mindset. He has different ways to uh, adjust his swing based on, uh, I guess, the variety of breaking balls he's seeing, and hopefully he'll get some, he'll force pitchers to throw more fastballs and, and, I guess, come at him up in the zone. Yeah, against left-handers this year, Eloy Jimenez is hitting 207 with a 305 on on-base percentage and slugging just 390. Against righties, he's batting 250 with a 290 on on-base percentage and slugging 480. That's a bit eye-opening. Yeah, he sees the ball better against lefties in terms of laying off. I think he's able to see that a bit better. But when it comes to actually doing damage on pitches, I think the, the sweeping stuff, as long as it's low, um, yeah, it's it's hard for him to get extra base power on that. Yeah, so again, there's 50 more games, and hopefully Eloy Jimenez gets hot and he starts learning those adjustments. But right now, uh, pitchers are still picking on him. And even though he had a great month of May, uh, it, May was a couple months ago, and I know there have been injuries. I'm sorry, that was a great month of June. Not May, he got hurt. June, terrific month. July, got hurt. It's just been an, an odd rookie season for Aloy Jimenez. Still, though, with 18 home runs, he's tied for the American League in rookies uh, with that amount. Uh, it's just still not having the type of rookie season we were expecting from him. But again, silver lining. Uh, he's learning now on how pitchers are attacking him, and hopefully he can demonstrate some of those adjustments, similar to what Yohan Mikata did last year when he was going through his struggles, and now look at Yohan Mikata. Now, on the pitching front, Ivan Nova's ERA, Jim, is now below five, baby. 
Season air ERAs at 4.80 after pitching eight scoreless innings. In his last 15 starts, Nova has a 3.45 ERA over 91 in a third innings. Yes, I know about the high FIP and XFIP, but maybe, Jim, Nova is pitching like the White Sox thought he would when they acquired him from Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's unexciting, and I think the White Sox may be early in the year trying to get more from him, trying to make him take one more step, especially you know, being a free agent at the end of the year. Maybe they could somehow um, you know, give him a boost and make him more effective against lefties and you know, ride the fastball more up in the zone and become less of a sinker-slider guy and more of a, a fastball curveball type you know pitcher who can keep uh left-handed hitters honest and i think that might have gone away from I, I guess what he does well and he wasn't able to get well at it fast enough to um i guess save a season line but now i think it's more along the lines of what they thought they were getting for Jordi rosario and yeah it's fine um you know it's it's not uh, exciting, but the White Sox need innings. They need professionalism. And uh, the besides, like uh, Lucas Giolito and Novi, Reynaldo Lopez is coming along. But then you know, two other rotation spots right now. Dylan Cease is doing okay, but uh, um, you know he's not a great bet to go five every time. Um, you know, after that, you just you need professionalism and innings and guys who can you know be efficient. And sometimes he gets beat up, but he still throws strikes. He still uh, has pretty short innings. So, uh, you know, it's a way to, I guess, help turn the calendar day over the way that uh, James Shields did. And, yeah, that's really, I guess, damning with faint praise a little bit. But when it's a rebuilding season, you want those days to come off the calendar as fast as they can. I'm still surprised nobody took them before the deadline. Like St. Louis and Milwaukee needed cheap starting pitching help, and they passed up on them. See, this is what happens, Jim, when people don't listen to my crazy ideas. They miss out on opportunity. To get someone like Von Nova, who's hot right now. Yeah, I mean the Cardinals, especially. I think uh, they've they've had some uh, massive pitching problems exposed since uh, the deadline passed, and uh, I've seen some posts here and there about just uh, how their conservatism is, uh, you know, might get them in trouble uh, because like the Cubs are pretty good about uh, adding aggressively at the deadline, and a lot of the World Series teams and and you know the the teams that make deep playoff runs have really gotten a lot of their help at the deadline and and for a team to take it off basically and say uh, we can't really find help we don't really need help um you know what we have is good enough uh even if it's just a, a mild upgrade um or i guess like they won't accept mild upgrades they'll only accept like home runs or, or trades they can win and that's just uh it might be a byproduct of just how slow and cautious and uh, risk-averse GMs have gotten, but I think uh, there is a risk in being risk-averse. Hmm, that's a good way of putting it. There is a risk in being risk-adverse. Let's save that one for the winter meetings, Jim. I have a feeling we may be using that again. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and Giolito was decent. Uh, Hector Santiago wasn't, uh, but I guess Santiago is sticking around, Jim, uh, and I don't know... What his role is going to be? I mean, what is his role going to be for the White Sox, seeing as how they're not sending him back to Charlotte? I don't know. I mean, I think with Dylan Covey, when it was Dylan Covey and Ross Detweiler, he had the righty-lefty thing going, and you can, I guess, alternate based on which one you think might give you a better chance on a certain day. But with you know, Santiago being lefty and Detweiler being lefty, there isn't that kind of natural pairing to know, like, who's going to do the, uh, you know, who's going to have the better shot on paper at... Uh, at surviving the day. So unless they think that Santiago is just, you know, him 
being there, him being a veteran, him being somebody who is uh, uh, malleable and can bounce back from extended outings and pitch like multiple times in a week, uh, even if he's coming out of the bullpen and throwing two to three outings innings apiece in an outing, you know, maybe that's what they want from him. But uh, otherwise, it's going to be hard to know unless they really think that, uh, you know, the first start was just him knocking rust off. And this time it's uh, going to be five innings at least. Yeah, we'll see on how often that he is used. Uh, I think the term Swiss Army Knife was dropped in one of the game recaps by James Fegan of The Athletic that the White Sox could use him in multiple ways. But we'll see. Uh, You know, we want to get through as far as the show, but Jimmy Cordero uh, has been pretty impressive coming out of the bullpen and getting opportunities to pitch in some high leverage situations. And we'll see how he does this upcoming weekend against the Athletics, but he may be someone uh, we'll have to pay more attention to after this upcoming weekend uh, if he does continue to pitch well. Yeah, if I may uh, get on my old hobby horse, he would be a good opener for somebody like a Detweiler or Santiago. Just come in, throw 100 miles an hour, and... Yeah, for an inning or two. Here's Detweiler. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just, you know, when you look at uh, uh, how the Yankees do with Chad Green throwing 96-98, just power stuff, and then going to a soft-tossing lefty in uh, Nestor Cortez, you know, just like it's... It's how I've seen other teams do it. There, that's how the Rays have done it with Ryan Stanek and such. Um, seems like uh, he would be if they like Evan Marshall and Aaron Bummer and and Alex Colome seven eight nine. Then Colome, if you want him to help in games where the White Sox can win them, uh, that might be the way to do it. I mean, they won't do it, but it's, <laughs> uh, in in my head, this is like you know we. It was hard to find like a righty who was ideal for it. Like Juan Manaya would have been a stretch. Kelvin Herrera, once he started struggling, that might not have helped. Uh, but I think Cordero, now now that he's on a roll and throwing 100 and throwing strikes and throwing multiple pitches for strikes, he's the kind of power righty that uh, seems ideal for the role with a couple uh, lefties who can go four to six innings. Well, the White Sox are now 51-62 and 62 as they head into the weekend series against the Oakland Athletics. And we are going to preview that series against the A's in a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets for sporting events, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you're looking for all in one place. Why is SeatGeek better than the rest? Well, a quick look at their app store shows over 50,000 five-star reviews as SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10 and then SeatGeek displays them on an interactive seat map. So if you, if you have never been to a venue before or you are comparing uh, deals on SeatGeek, you can check out on how your seats look and make your decision based on that. And I use SeatGeek all of the time to buy tickets, especially for White Sox games as I use SeatGeek again uh, this upcoming weekend as I'll be going to the Saturday game against the Oakland Athletics. And, you know, I just love using SeatGeek because the tickets are fully guaranteed. And that's great, especially since more and more stadiums are going to digital. But they always have great deals. And if you're looking for some great deals to either go to the Saturday game because of the Aloy Jimenez bobblehead giveaway or Sunday for the Harold Baines Hall of Fame plaque giveaway, uh, check out SeatGeek. And when you do, uh, you can get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And the Oakland Athletics stay in Chicago. They lost two out of three at Wrigley Field. They're going to have Thursday off 
in Chicago, the weather is great, so I'm sure they're going to enjoy the day off in the Windy City before they have to head to the south side for three-game series against the White Sox. The A's are 65-50 and 50 on the season. They're 10 games back of Houston in the American League West, so I don't think there's a good chance for the A's in winning the American League West. But they are currently a half game behind of the Tampa Bay Rays for the last postseason spot, the second wild card, and they're three and a half games back of Cleveland for the first wild card. So this series is big for the A's. In the last 10 games, they are seven and three, and on the road they are close to 500. They are 28 and 27 on the road, and the last time. That the White Sox and A's played in Oakland. The White Sox got embarrassed, losing all three games and was outscored 21 to 5. And your pitching problems for this series. Note the odd start time for Friday. It is a 2:10 Central Time start on Friday, as it's Ross Detweiler against Mike Fierce, who pitched seven to two thirds scoreless innings his last time against the White Sox. On Saturday at 6:10 p.m. Central Time, it is Tanner Work against Ronaldo Lopez, and on Sunday it is Chris Bassett who threw six scoreless innings in his last time against the White Sox against Lucas Giolito. Jim, the White Sox were embarrassed the last time they faced the Athletics. Will it be a different outcome for them this time at home? I don't feel great about it. I think they can do better than they did in Oakland. That was, yeah, I think partially um, coming out of the gate in the second half and a tough place to play and, and against a better team. And I think they just got caught flat-footed, looked unprepared. <laughs> just uh, it was really a, a terrible um, set of circumstances that they performed poorly under. So I, I nothing was going for him and, and for them. And so, yeah, it's... I think this time they're playing a better brand of baseball. I think Detroit's like a nice practice frame for it, I suppose, where they get all nice and uh, warmed up for it. But no, it's it's gonna be tough. And I think especially with the the right-handed pitchers coming at them, that they're gonna have to prove that they can hit righties, uh, which they haven't done. You know, at least certain hitters haven't done in in quite a bit. So I don't feel optimistic about it, but I'm am hoping that we don't see like as you mentioned, like the seven scoreless innings the six scoreless innings the seven and two-thirds scoreless innings i don't think that'll happen but it's gonna be tough um especially a's are hitting the ball well some guys are really hitting the ball well uh yeah marcus Semyon had a big series at wrigley field so uh, it's gonna be tough <laughs> i'll put it that way well the next 30 games are going to be tough for the white Sox. uh over their next 30 game stretch at home they have the series against oakland followed by houston and then they will host texas and then another home series against Minnesota. And then the Anaheim Angels will come visit. When they go on the road, they're going to visit the Angels. Another road trip to Minnesota. And then they go to Atlanta for Labor Day weekend. And then they have another road series against Cleveland, in which the Cleveland Indians are a much better team than they were when the White Sox last faced them. I don't know, man, it seems like, what, May was the last time the White Sox faced Cleveland with so many games loaded in the beginning of the schedule. Uh, it's been a while since the White Sox have faced the Cleveland Indians. Uh, the combined winning percentage for all these teams I just listed is 573. And the White Sox record against teams that are above 500 is 26 and 40. So this could be a doomed 30 game stretch for the White Sox here, Jim. So let's play over under knowing what they're going up against these next 30 games. I'm setting the line at 12 and a half games. 
actually 12 and a half wins, the amount that the White Sox will have in their next 30 games. Are you going over 12 and a half wins or are you going to go under? Well, you mentioned the 26 and 40 record. So, you know, that's about uh, 393 winning percentage over 30 games. That's 11.8. So I was feeling like around that. uh, I'm thinking like 11. So I think I'm going to say under. All right. So under and you're thinking 11. So they go 11 and 19 during that stretch, which would be expected. Yeah, it feels like there's like one big losing streak in here. I think that'll, you know, just with uh, the the games in succession, the way bullpens can get worn out, uh, the way that their offense can be uh, really struggle to hit right-handed pitching. I just think there's a, there could be like an eight gamer in here that really throws the whole thing off. Well, I mean, you go three at home against Oakland and then... After that, you have the Houston Astros for three games at home. And then you hop on a plane and you head out to Anaheim. And after Anaheim, you have to go to Minneapolis. So in that 10-game stretch there, you may get your eight-game losing streak that you're talking about, Jim. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the baseball always surprises, so you never want to bet on that. But but you mentioned those circumstances, and yeah, I just don't feel great about it so like there I, I even with Giolito kind of you know coming back to the mean and and uh, you know with his performance and and figuring out how to get to the last third I think there's some fatigue setting in or at least fatigue is gonna have to overcome Lopez being you know I guess none of the pitchers that are on a roll or at least you know pitching reasonably well like Nova and Lopez and Giolito there aren't guys who will go seven on a normal good day the you know, other they're, they're lucky to go six if they can so I just think it's going to be a lot of innings for the bullpen to cover over the stretch without uh, a day off until um, the 26th. So that's what it feels like. Once the losing starts, you know, if they can't get that kind of key start like Nova had against the Twins, where all of a sudden, you know, they go seven and you make it an easy night for the bullpen, uh, it could add up on them. So I'm not feeling, uh, I'm not feeling like they can overperform in this trip or this little swing. I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to go over. I say they win 13 games. Okay. So slightly over, 13 and 17. The reason I'm feeling optimistic is that I do think that Cease, Giolito, even though uh, he's dealing with a little bit of fatigue, Lopez and Nova can still continue to pitch well enough to keep the team in games. I think there are some big blowouts that are coming <laughs> during this 30-game stretch for the White Sox. Uh, but if they can find a way uh, to have the lead late, and, and I know that stat is not very meaningful, but if you can get the ball to Evan Marshall and Aaron Bummer and Alex Colomay with a two-run lead uh, starting the seventh inning, that combination seems to be working for the White Sox uh, to steal s- some wins. I, I, again, I do not think they're going to hit 500 or go above 500 in these next 30 games, but I'll take the over. I, better than expected. 13 and 17 during this stretch. It's good over under though. Cause I had to think about it quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. Let's see. I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to be an odds maker, make it a little tough, make it, you know, people sweat. I do want to let you know on the Twitter poll over 250 people voted and uh, they agree with you, Jim, 58% went with the under 12 and a half. So you have plenty of company uh, taking the under. Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I wrestled with it a little bit, but I think if they suffer that big losing streak, I don't see them tying together wins well enough to compensate. Yeah. And uh, who knows, maybe, just maybe, they will get some reinforcements from Charlotte uh, that can help out. Maybe. If I speak it into existence, it will happen. 
I keep telling myself that. AJ Reed. <sighs> you know it. <laughs> but anyways, I think that's a good time to end this particular episode. Uh, so that will do it for this edition of Socks Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening to the live stream on Mixler.com slash Socks Machine. If you don't get an opportunity to listen to the live stream, no worries. Every edition of Socks Machine Live is always available in the Socks Machine podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. And if you enjoy our work over at Socks Machine and you want more or you want to help support us, you can go to Patreon.com slash Socks Machine to, again, get more content both from the podcast and from Jim's writing. Uh, you also get an ad-free edition of the podcast as well. So if that's of interest to you, plus some swag as well, uh, go to Patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today and that's uh, again socks machine live is a production of socksmachine.com your home for all things chicago white Sox baseball alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson thanks for listening sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvelous marvin Hagler, and thomas hearns legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.